Marissa Lee here, and I'm so excited to be sharing today's interview round episode with you. In these episodes, our brilliant lineup of guests will include healthcare practitioners, voice educators, and other professionals who will share their stories, knowledge, and experiences within their specialized fields to empower you to live your best life. Whether you're a member of the voice community or beyond, your voice is your unique gift. It's time now to share your gift with others, develop a positive mindset and become the best and most authentic version of yourself to create greater impact. Ultimately, you can take charge. It's time for you to live your best life. It's time now for A Voice and Beyond. So, without further ado, let's go to today's episode. Dr. Trinice Robinson-Martin is a world-class performer, voice researcher, author, and educator who has traveled and taught students from all over the world as well as lectured nationally and internationally on numerous topics relating to singing voice pedagogy and vocal style. In this episode, Trinice speaks candidly about the struggles she endured in higher education, where she discovered that there was a disconnect between academic singing and the singing that she grew up with within her church community. Trinice explains the more time she spent trying to sound academically correct, the more authentically incorrect her singing became. This motivated her to study voice on a deeper level and she completed her doctoral studies seeking to understand the cultural aesthetics and components of a vocal performance in gospel music. Based on her research, Trinice created Soul Ingredients, her trademarked teaching methodology, which focuses on student-centered learning and encourages personal freedom across African-American-based styles such as jazz, gospel, R&B, blues, and other pop styles. On today's show, Trinice also shares her views on why educational institutions still endorse a one-size-fits-all Eurocentric training model, the responsibilities of representing the black community in the singing voice community, and much, much more. You do not want to miss today's episode with Dr. Trinice Robinson-Martin. So without further ado, let's go to today's episode. Welcome to A Voice and Beyond, Trinice Robinson-Martin. It is such a pleasure having you on the show. How are you? Thank you so much for inviting me. I am just well. Thank you. So it is late at night there. You've done a gig, you've done a showcase, and you still so graciously agreed to come on the show. 
And I did say, if you fall asleep, I can't even like dong you on the head. With so <laughs> no worries at all. No worries at all. I'm. You give me energy, and I'll give it right back to you. I know I that. <laughs> I know. I think you're about the only person I know that can talk more than what I can. <laughs> I tell people all the time, "You're my sister in vocal pedagogy." Come on, let's yes, do this. <laughs> I know, right? Now, the last. 12 months have been really bittersweet for you. You have achieved some remarkable things. Finally, your album has been released. That was in August. You're back to gigging, but you've also been through some family loss as well. How are you going? You know, I think um, I'm grateful in the processes that I've been through in terms of life, in terms of my own health, you know, after I got the vaccine, I got sick. I was one of the unlucky ones that got real oh. sick. And then my stepfather passed. And so it was like a lot of things that were just happening. But then, you know, my album came out, it was well received. And then I started a new position at Rock Nation School of Music. And it was like a, a lot of new with a lot of overwhelming opportunities that it's really challenged my ability to say no. Mm -hmm. And that's been the hardest thing that has been trying to manage the new workload, trying to catch up because I was down for so long. And so it's been a very, it's been a very interesting year. But as the song says, my good days outweigh my bad days. So I will not complain. You don't complain. You don't complain. And you've always got such a wonderful, positive attitude. You are a shining light amongst our our voice community. You truly are. Now, you are, as for those people who don't know who you are, I'm sure they must have been living under a rock if they don't (laughs) within our community. (laughs) You are an acclaimed performer. You are a recording artist, you're a voice researcher, an educator, you are an author, and you're a presenter. And that's where we first met. It was at ICVT in Brisbane. I don't even remember how many years ago that was. Oh, my gosh. I think by now it was probably about eight years because I think that was 2013. Mm -hmm. I feel like 2013 was the year. So it's been a while. It's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah. And I accidentally was in your workshop that you were giving at the time. It was on gospel singing. And just a quick story. I happened to be there because I was volunteering. So my husband and I, in that moment in time, we'd lost everything. So I couldn't afford to go to ICVT, even though it was in my own city, I couldn't afford to go. And Irene Bartlett, our dear friend, mm-hmm. said to me, Marissa, why don't you come along and volunteer and then you don't, it won't cost you anything. And that's how I came to be at ICVT. I mean, look how our wow. worlds have changed look so much since then. Yeah, so I literally couldn't afford to go. So I ended up being there and I was assigned your room and thank goodness it was meant to be. I was totally captivated and I thought this is what music and singing is all about, especially, and I'm not being disrespectful, but in a lot of the rooms there were our classical friends and it was just so refreshing 
to be in a room where there was joy and the real joy of singing. So thank you. And since then, we've crossed paths number of times. A lot. <laughs> a lot. <Right>. And, <laughs> and we'll get to some of those. And, you know, we've had the pleasure of actually working on something together. We've had a collaboration. But let's go back and do a little bit of a background check on Trenise and your story. So where did you grow up? What is your so I'm, background? I'm originally from Oakland, California, mm-hmm. in here in the U.S., just all the way on the other side of the country from where I am now in New Jersey. I have two sisters, so three girls. I'm a the daughter of a, of a legacy of clergy, of people that are in the church. My father's a pastor. My grandfather, actually on both sides, next to my grandfather on one side and then my and great-grandfather, all that lineage on my dad's side, so they're all church. And then on my mother's side, my great-grandfather was also a pastor. So, you know, church was big in our family. Also, my mother's father was big into music, more jazz. And that's where I really got into jazz. Because he's the one that introduced me into just the idea of giving me an Ella Fitzgerald CD and like, learn how high the moon. You know, before then, I didn't really consider myself a singer. Before then, I was, you know, singing was just a part of what we did. I mean, it was church. Everybody sang like, Mm-hmm. You don't sing. You don't sing in the family choir. Of course you do. Mm-hmm. You know, so I didn't really think of myself as a singer until really when my grandfather, my maternal grandfather gave me a CD and was like, hey, why don't you try to do look at this um, Ella Fitzgerald? And then I when I got into high school, I was already playing piano. So when I started singing, my everybody was like, wait a minute, you sing? Because I never sang outside of church. So, wow. you know, it's quite interesting how life just creates, yeah. you know, its own little legacy for its own purpose and divine reasoning. Because when I graduated from high school, I certainly was not planning on being a musician. I was going to be an engineer. So I went to school for engineering and I ended up changing my major, probably my junior year or the end of my sophomore year, beginning of the junior year, after having internships and singing just, you know, a little bit. And people there were like, why are you not Majoring in music? Like, why are you not pursuing this? So, you know, and yes. here I am. So here why am. weren't you pursuing it? I mean, you developed that love of music, thankfully to your grandfather by the sounds of things, introducing you to that music that you really resonated with and really inspired you to sing. Why did you not think to take up music as well, a I career? Think, I think, first of all, I am first-generation college student. I mean, I had a couple of cousins that graduated from Berkeley. My parents had gone to college, but they didn't graduate. So there was a little bit more about me just wanting to make sure that I was going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Me not seeing being a professional music as a viable occupation. I mean, yes. I didn't really have any models. Yes. I think everyone that I knew was in music was obviously in church musicians. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they all had day jobs. Mm-hmm. So it, it, to me, it didn't seem like a viable profession to make a living. And my high school teacher was like, whatever you do, do not major in music. <laughs> you know, wow. he was one of those. And I mean, I'm from Oakland Public School District. So it, it wasn't like that was a risk at the time. That was something that you would just take because mm-hmm. and it wasn't until my mom actually was like, you know, don't listen to what other people are saying. You create your own path. 
you get to decide what's successful and what's not. You get to decide this is what you want to do. So mm. that gave me the encouragement to just keep studying and, you know, go for this profession and really understand that there's so much more involved in the profession of a musician and an educator and a clinician. Like I didn't know all the things that I'm doing mm -hmm. now. There was no model for this. You know, I didn't know yes. that, that exists. I didn't even yes. know voice science existed before I graduated. Yeah. So mm -hmm. much so that I said, if I would have known that this was a field, I probably would have went from, because I was doing chemical engineering, because I was big in science and math. I probably would have went into voice science had I known it existed. It existed. So, you know, I totally get everything that you're saying because in my family, no one had a university education. My parents came from an island of Sicily and my mum went to grade two, which is like she went to school for two years out of a whole life. My father went to school for about three years. None; of, They were totally uneducated and music was not an option either. But I don't know, like, here we are. This is, this we is, are, here literally. we both are. So I want to break down, when you were doing your master's degree, you studied music education and jazz studies, I read somewhere that that was a bit of a confusing time for you because you started to find that you're a different person in those lessons as to the person that was singing in church. So do you want to share that experience with us? Yeah. So because, as you know, most of the vocal pedagogy is led by classical singers. Mm -hmm. You know, when I got to Indiana University for my master's degree, my first master's degree, it was in jazz studies. And at that time, there was no vocal jazz program at Indiana University Bloomington. There is now. And there were all classical teachers. Mm -hmm. And one very, very brave teacher, Marianne Hart, who's still there, said, I will teach her. She was a recitalist. She, her big area was art song. And she said, let me be the one that teaches her. Because literally, there would have been no one else there. And so she started introducing me to, you know, the concepts of real vocal technique in the sense of. And I say vocal technique in terms of just having a strategy, you right. know, understanding of a balanced instrument. And mm -hmm. the interesting part about it is that because she was teaching from a classical standpoint, there were certain things about vocal function that I started to relate to classical music instead of fundamental things that I need for my voice. So, mm -hmm. for example, if she was trying to get me to develop head voice because my chest voice was obviously much stronger than my head voice. Yeah, I but hear you. <laughs> the, if the model for the head voice was only a rounded, focused sound, then at the end of the day, I would have this, like head voice was only this one sound. So I'd be like, oh, right. It was like, you know, it just didn't work, which is why it was like, oh, okay, well, I guess this is something only I do in the studio, in this mm -hmm. voice studio, mm -hmm. but not anything that I'll ever use because it doesn't sound right. <laughs> Yes, yes. Put. It just didn't sound, it didn't sound culturally viable. It didn't sound like it belonged. Mm -hmm. um, so I would avoid it. And then thus would never really develop it at the level that I probably would have had I understood the context, had I understood the things about the voice. And as a result, because I had this kind of like, all right, I know this is not quite it. I yes. don't know what it is. Yes. 
let me figure out what it is because there's obviously people that are doing this for a living. And there are obviously people that are doing this for a really long time without damaging themselves from being able to maintain their careers as appropriately as the next person. So that led me on this journey to really figure out, okay, well, what is voice pedagogy for soul music, for black music in particular? You know, when I started my, my doctorate research, I was trying to do pedagogy of soul, which I teach a lot on pedagogy of soul now, but that was going to be my dissertation instead of the gospel pedagogy. I narrowed it really? down to gospel because when you're in graduate school, the first thing you have to do is narrow your scope. And I narrowed it down to gospel because I recognize how important and how influential gospel music was to the black musical sound, mm -hmm. if you will, to, mm -hmm. to put it loosely. You yes. know, the legacies that have yes. evolved from times of slavery and slave songs and spirituals into R&B and soul and, and hip hop and, and jazz and blues and all of these different things. And you start to it was then I, I realized that, oh, OK, if I'm going to study this music, I might as well be not only because of culturally what I grew up with. But I should really focus on the practices that a lot of the popular music side of it, the secular music side of it had developed. Yes. You know, or mirrored <laughs> or shared. Yeah, you know, yeah. Everything I needed to know about Black music was going to be in gospel. Yes. And when I did my PhD, it was in CCM, the training of CCM singers. There was a lot of information in your dissertation that was really practical and useful and aligned to the work that I was writing on, the research that I was doing. It was one of the few papers out there at the time that was any good to me. Well, I tell you that it was definitely, you know, when they say labor of love, it was a labor of my own wanting to know, my mm -hmm. own inquisitive mind of saying, okay, I did that dissertation for me. It just so happened everybody else wanted to know the information. But I promise you, I did not think that it was something that anyone else wanted to read or explore. Particularly, mm -hmm. I didn't think that in academia. But it is so thorough because yes. I was really, really seeking answers. I, I wanted to understand, well, what is it that people are describing things as or and how can I bring these worlds together? And I say that because even in my own community, meaning even in the gospel community or even in the R&B community, people couldn't articulate what it is that they were hearing, what it is that they, they just like, oh, I know you're either right or you're wrong. But they couldn't really articulate the people mm. that I was around, at least couldn't articulate what it is that they were hearing that was more soulful or like if my dad. You know, my dad or any of the clergy people that we would go to, they'd say, oh, when you really let the Lord use you, you're going to be something. And they would make statements like that, which is quite vague. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Or they'll say something like when you really start singing. And I'm like, well, what am I doing? Because by then I had at least gotten a couple of degrees, but there was something that was missing. I'm like, why was it that when I went into church, I was still looked at as this trained singer, right? Like not necessarily authentic, authentic. Like I wasn't singing like my cousins or, and then what was it that when I sang gospel, I mean, when I sang jazz, they would say, boy, I can sure hear that gospel. Mm -hmm. Or then what was it that when I started to sing R&B, they would say, man, you sound so jazzy. But so, no one could figure it out. No one yeah. could articulate yeah. what it is that they were 
were hearing mm -hmm. that was giving them that perception. So yes. that was why I really, really dug in. And that's why when you go to my clinics, I'm always like, oh, well, this is what this is. And this is why this is this. Yes. This is where this comes from. Yes. <laughs> it was because I was trying to find out for myself. Yeah. So a couple of questions there, because that's a lot. That's actually a lot. So when you were singing in church, did you feel as that young person, you were the most authentic to Trinice you could possibly be? That was your most authentic sound. Did you feel that the academia started pulling that apart? Or was it well, that exploration that started pulling that apart where you didn't fit in with the jazz cohort? You didn't fit in with the gospel. You didn't fit in with the classical. Like you must have been going, yeah. where do I fit in here? Where's my sense of belonging? Absolutely. And I also had that mental thing of wanting to be right. Mm -hmm. So I knew I've sensed or I had absorbed through academic society that really singing hard was not healthy. Yes. Okay. So I knew I wasn't supposed to do that per se. So I was also trying to maintain a sense of vocal responsibility once I started singing, like singing mm -hmm. for real, like and being trained. The problem is that I, you know, looking back in retrospect now, the problem with that is that I spent more time trying to be right instead of being effective and efficient. That makes sense in, yes. in ministry. And I so, would say authentic yeah. too, because sometimes when you want to be right, you start to lose that authenticity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it becomes more about you being right than about what you're supposed to be doing at the moment. So then you know? what made it wrong? interesting to spin it around and go okay yeah. this is what I was doing and it sounded right like in that context right. of the church it sounded right but then all of a sudden why did it start not being right and what did you feel was wrong with it well what was wrong with it is is again just as I was saying what was wrong with it is that I was concentrated on it being vocally right mm. which then means that I'm thinking about notes. I'm yes. thinking about words. I'm thinking about yes. breath flow. I'm yes. thinking about quote unquote placement. I'm thinking about, am I breathing low? Am I thinking about, do I remember the words? Am I thinking about, is this the right pitch? Nothing to do with the song that I'm singing. Nothing mm -hmm. to do with the ministerial function that I have at the moment. I'm coming here to sing mm -hmm. your pretty song so that you can clap. Well, in the black church, both as the institution and in my and my family church, the ability to bring the congregation to a sense of collective joy or yes. collective sorrow is the point, right? Mm -hmm. It is the point to be able to move and to be able to minister, to be able to have a conversation musically with yes. not only the instrumentalist, but also with the congregation, like as this collective expression. And that mm -hmm. is the point. So mm -hmm. being in my head and being in the technique and being in to the melody of the song and the words without ever stopping to think about what the words meant to my own testimony, that was everything wrong about what I was doing so academically right. Yes. And that what in all fairness too, mm -hmm. that principle can be applied to singers across all styles. 
I mean, I always say, and it's kind of like my standing joke, we're pretty messed up as singers. We are so in our heads already. We're always listening for that note. Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it here? Is it there? And we kind of start to lose the joy and the storytelling. And that is probably when we start to truly become imposters is when we do that and not when, you know what, it doesn't matter if it's not right as long as the message is coming across and I'm feeling it. It's kind of a little bit messed up in our community too at times. Well, I think about that a lot and I think about why that is and I think about, I mean, all the way down to where we talk about um, classical music pedagogy, having that kind of overarching standard vocal pedagogy, right? Mm -hmm. Well, people are very quick, whether that's in classical music or not, to say, I was classically trained, you know, especially your CCM people. I was classically trained. I was classically trained. Yes. You know, and there's a lot of people that still believe that if you are trained classically per se, that you can sing anything. And and the thing that I find most compelling about this thought process Mm -hmm. when I'm breaking it down and when I'm trying to look at it from their perspective, I'm thinking number one is the generic term for functional training, classical. Do these people really mean that if I apply the parameters that it requires to sing classically to rock, gospel, R&B, it's going to be the same. That would be ridiculous to say so. However, Mm -hmm. I think that they're thinking, oh, this mindfulness of what am I doing with the line, this mindfulness of am I taking a, a breath that's not compromising what I'm doing? Those are those kinds of things. And it made me think of that because in yes. this concept of when you're looking and you're training for parameters, what happens when the parameters of a particular style breed more technical acquisition? You know, and I, and I feel like classical music, a part of what makes it beautiful is very highly measured within the technical acquisition yes. for the greater community, right? Yes. So if you have that mindset of a part of what it is, is a, the part of what makes it beautiful and compelling is your ability to miss a devotion, is your ability to have this balanced vibrato and have these lines that seem to, you know, meld from, from vowel to vowel. Like if that is what you perceive, as beauty to move into another cultural context where that doesn't exist in that level or doesn't exist at all, mm-hmm. then you don't even realize that you're a kind of pulling this person away yes. from being culturally viable within the context that they're singing. You yes. know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And in across CCM styles and obviously including gospel music, People will forgive imperfections as long as you're being authentic. We don't care if there are imperfections. We'd rather hear a bad note and be able to see into the eyes and the soul of the person who's singing than have beauty of tone and it's so boring. It might be beautiful, but it's so boring. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. You know, and I think that's, with that said, that is one of the things that makes me really challenge what pedagogy is mm-hmm. for CCM. It really makes me challenge because the only models that we've had 
had been from an academic standpoint, from this classical mindset, right? These classical parameters of this is yes. what you should do in formal training. Yes. So yes. then it became, okay, well, what is responsible training? What is functional training? If the parameters for excellence in, you know, these quantitative parameters of tone and all this kind of stuff, what happens? How do you train someone formally and to be responsible for their instrument? but yet articulate their soul. That becomes another thing. And that's what I've been spending like the last 10 years, really trying to evolve and trying to better articulate for not only myself and my students, but for the greater uh, vocal pedagogy community. Mm. Like, let's start putting together what this means. What kind of pedagogy does this mean? You know, how do we develop this type of expression? How do we mm-hmm. develop our students to be able to freely share themselves in a, as you call, authentic way, in an authentic manner, which is not a part of our natural society? Like we don't, we yes. don't go around just freely being like, oh, I love you. I mean, you know, unless you're like yes. us. Mm-hmm. We're just that yeah. kind of person anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, really, yes. I, you know, and well, then it's and interesting. That was, yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, because this has been a kind of journey that I've been on the last 12 months, is all of the things that you're talking about. And my answer to that is, yes, we do need to teach our students, you know, how to create a sustainable sound in a healthy manner. But also, too, we need to be able to, as teachers, leave our absolute biases at the door create safe spaces for our students where they can feel vulnerable enough to be able to be who they are in that moment in time and that it's okay that it's not perfect. It's okay. It's okay to make a mistake. It's okay if you break down in tears because that you, what you have just shared is so great and is so deep and it's so powerful that you can't help but cry. And then I sit there and cry as a teacher and we well, share that moment. That's what I think we need to do. And that's what I think that there's, that's something that we have to learn as well, just as emotional beings, mm-hmm. that the idea of not wanting to cry and not wanting to express yourself in this vulnerable place being an inhibitor of sound, you know, I, because yes. they're like, oh, I don't want to get choked up, but not realizing the flow. How, like, how do you cry and flow? How do you cry and release that energy and not hold it in? All of these different things that I feel like it's just not a part of our natural way of being, or should I say it's part of our natural way of being, but it's not as part of our societal norm for yes. behaving. So I think a part of our contemporary pedagogy that has to really start with allowing the students, like you're saying, mm. this space to say, you are wonderfully made. I'll say this in all of my lectures. You are wonderfully made. All we are doing is musicking who you are. We are yes. musicking the sound. You, yes. don't, you don't stop not one bit to check your um, registration or your breathing when you're trying to tell somebody off or you're telling somebody how, they, how mm-hmm. you feel. So mm-hmm. let's see if we can put that natural being, that genuine communication within song and in the context and make sure that we're developing your voice in a way that you can sustain that musical behavior. You can sustain that emotional intensity for longer than you would in a conversation. Two questions here, Trinise. 
when you were studying and Okay, actually, I have a, a million questions. <laughs> uh, I know. And okay, so when you were at university and you were studying, did you have that support? Did you have that teacher that allowed you to be who you were and to emote and to be authentic and to be vulnerable and to be real? Or is this something now that you're starting to think about as you've become a teacher yourself? This is definitely something that I started once I became a teacher myself. Because one of the things, because it's not even so much that my teachers were saying to do to do this or not to do this. I think my own self, my own limitations to allow myself to be exposed, to allow myself to be vulnerable is what really started this whole path of like freedom of expression. I mean, I did have one mentor who, one of my elder mentors who is still, still living that once upon a, he was like, will the real Trinity please stand up? Because mm-hmm. he was noting that my personality and who I was off stage was not the same person as I was, you know, the controlled, yes. the, yes. I'm going to sing this song because it's popular. It was like, it was two different people. Oh, I'm on stage now. So now I have to be more refined because I'm singing jazz. But then I get off stage and be like all crazy and wild. Right. Yes. And so, and this was actually during my doctorate work. I mean, you know, my doctorate years, maybe even right after I graduated that we were talking and, and he was like, you know, you got to figure out how do you become the same person? How do you mm-hmm. maintain your, your sense of self? And I've kept that after that yes. conversation, I've kept that. And you see, which is why even in these academic settings, I'm still very much myself. I mean, you know, you are. and it's intentional. It took a while before I felt like that was OK. And having mentors that reinforced that. Another story, while I was in college, there was one professor that I had talked to Lori Custodero. She was one of the professors at Teachers College. And I remember saying, you know, I'm getting this doctorate. Should I change the way I speak? You know, because I'm very casual. I'm very vernacular. Mm-hmm. Should I, mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. most of the Black academics have a very, very specific way of speaking. They're extremely articulate. And I was wondering, am I diminishing my position? And my education by not speaking at that level of these, you know, black elites, if you will. And I remember her saying to me, she said that I think it's going to be more important that you just be you. And yes, yes, will there be some people that not like that? Yes, but they probably won't be for you anyway. I think the people that are going to be for you are going to like you how you are. Yes. Yeah, I, I kind of went with that. And I was like, okay, because it takes a whole lot of effort to be somebody else. <laughs> it does. And <laughs> it truly does. And look, it's something that I've struggled with also, yeah. what you're saying. I've spent a great deal of my time feeling like an imposter, someone that hasn't belonged. I never thought right. I was smart. I never thought that, you know, I would listen to myself speak. And I think, oh my gosh, you don't speak very well. You have to fix the way you speak. Yeah. You don't dress like the usual academic or the, you know, university lecturer. I went through all that stuff yeah. also, and it all comes back to our self-worth. 
don't you think? Mm -hmm. And how we value ourselves. It's actually nobody else's business but our own and the the pressure we put on ourselves. And it sounds like to me you that's what was happening to you with that probably even thinking about it. And part of that is imposter and part of that is that sense of do I belong here? Right. Do I have what it takes to belong here? And I think that first generation, I think that's that Mm -hmm. first generation academic where you don't have these visual representations, where you don't Mm -hmm. have these personal experiences of other people that are in the same field or the same models. It's funny because now that I'm at Rock Nation School of Music, so this is a new program that just started this year at Long Island University, Brooklyn. And a lot of the students there are first generation First generation college students, first generation um, musicians, a very large minority students. I mean, you know, in terms of the student body. And it's interesting because I see myself in my role and my position as that of a role model. Yes. I've always wanted to be that person that said that can help redefine what does it mean to have four degrees? What does it mean to teach that at Ivy League? What does it mean to be Ivy League grad? Do I get to rewrite what that is and just say, yes, I can laugh out loud. You know, I can say, hey, use all these colloquialisms. Yes. But still be quite articulate, you know, and still be encouraging to my students that come in and are failing music theory and ear training because they're now being put into the system and tested in this European system that is more notated and quantified when you've been going by your ears all this time. <laughs> and you, now you have to remember what stuff was called. You know what I mean? To, yeah, to I do there, know. Like, yeah, I, yes. There. This too shall pass. <laughs> <laughs> so when you said that, that reminds me of Elizabeth Blades. That's one of her big sayings is this too shall pass. That was Does something it? her father <laughs> used to say to her. Yeah, uh, yep. Have you seen a change then? from when you first started studying in the university system, in the higher education system, to now? Or do you feel that we still have a long way to go in higher education in terms of accepting CCM styles, accepting minority groups, accepting singers who have had little or no training but have amazing ability but can't read a note of music, Mm -hmm. are we still in the same situation we were in 10 years ago, do you feel? Well, you know, that's a good question. I'm going to say no. I'm saying we're not where we can be, but we're definitely not where we were. And I say that because there's a lot more effort, I think, in teaching associations And different associations academically or non-academically that are more invested in moving towards diverse education, moving towards diverse styles, moving towards just being a lot more open minded, like the conversation is there. Now, Mm -hmm. granted, to try to integrate these changes within an old academic system is going to obviously take longer. Yes. Then. It is going to be in the public market. I mean, in the in the private market, meaning, you know, as a private teacher, it's more private teachers teaching CCM. Right. And even when we have these degree programs, they are degree programs situated within a Eurocentric 
pedagogic context. Mm -hmm. So even though we're opening up and we're trying to be more diverse, it to really change and really impact the curriculum so that it is more culturally centered is going to be a little bit longer, farther away. But I do feel like it's coming because there's enough people that are thinking about it and there's enough people that are starting the conversation Mm. of saying, hey, something is not right. Yes. When I was doing my, I think I was in my final year of writing my dissertation and we met up in Sweden. We're at Mm -hmm. ICVT in Sweden. And I remember being there and there was a lot more openness in Europe at that time in terms of CCM. And I just had this moment and I I remember coming to you and I said, Trenise, look, you know, why is there such a problem with CCM in the States? And I said, I have a feeling, I remember like (laughs) it was like this moment, and I just said, (laughs) I have a feeling that it's because where the music has come from. It's the roots of the music. And if that's the case, I can't believe it. Like for me it was such like a moment where I just went, wow, I think this is I found the answer and I was in shock. I mean, was I right at the time? Like do you feel that I was on the right track? Yeah, it's really funny because I feel like we have always, we Americans, have always had this, I'm trying to choose my words carefully. Sure. I know you well enough to know that face. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that Let me watch what I say and yeah, how that, I say this. Yes, yes. Before I make an overgeneralization. But I think we as Americans historically have had such this love-hate relationship with Europeanism. Mm. And I say it like that yes. because to be dignified to be considered high class has always had a great relationship to Western European culture, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Elite Western yes. European culture. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. So it, the intellects the these academic institutions that are cherished happen to be the Oxfords and these, all of these, you know, again, elite European institutions. As a result, I think that what's considered high art And again, a representation of this being dignified and this elite status is heavily rooted within this elite European culture. And anything that is not of that culture is not worth scholarly recognition. Right. And I say it from that standpoint, because a lot of times I would think about it as more of a racial aspect, which is a much more complex Mm -hmm. construct then I think a lot of people from outside the U.S. really understand. I mean, people inside the U.S. don't even understand it because Mm -hmm. it's not taught as freely. But I start, the more that I get into critical race theory, the more I I start to understand American history, and the more I start to understand race as a social structure rather than ethnicity. And the history that goes along with that is I start to realize that, oh, a lot of this, like race is so complex. And I don't want to go into like no. this whole thing because no. it's like, whew. We don't need to, no. Yeah. But what I started to realize is that it's not just a black thing in terms of, 
oh, they're not looking at jazz and blues and gospel because it's a black thing. There's some of that too, but they're also not looking at American folk as substantial, you know, even if it's by white people per se, white people as a close social construct, mainly because it's a poor thing more so. I'm not going to look at the music of the poor people and I'm definitely not going to look at the music of the people that are poor and black. So certainly much more complex because it's like, oh, well, it's not worthy of study. You know, it's not, you have to study the music of the classical composers if you want to be considered an intellectual. So it's that culture that is so much deeper, you know, particularly in the U.S. It's everywhere, but I think in other countries, there's some exoticism <laughs> that yes. is seen when they're looking at like, oh, the American music or black music, you know, that are like, wow, it's this other thing that's exciting. And like, I want to know more about. Whereas I don't think you all have that same kind of look. It's like, wow, what is this other thing? But it is, it's still very complex. It is it's, very and growing. It's developing, you know, particularly with cultural reckonings that's happening right now. It's a growing topic of inclusivity, all these different things. So, yes. but yeah, no, you, it was absolutely right. You're absolutely right that all of the musics that you would think that would be the biggest thing in the U.S., American music, is much bigger in everywhere else. Yes. Well, I suppose it made absolutely no sense to me at the time when I was writing my and doing my research on CCM that those music styles accounted for 99% of music sales and streaming and downloads, and classical was 1%. And so if you were to put that on a graph, it's like that CCM and this is classical. But then when you look at the university system, that's classical and this is CCM. So I was thinking, why aren't they acknowledging this music? And in one sense, I was thinking, well, this is very irresponsible because these students are not going to have jobs at the end of their training. Yeah. But again, when your definition of Mm. intellect is rooted in elite Europeanism, then it makes perfect sense. Yes. It was not to create musicians, obviously, (laughs) because if it really was to create musicians that had jobs, then they would go with the market. But it's obviously appealing to this another mindset that as we are now in the position to kind of challenge these ideas are like, hey, your idea of Europeanism or elite Europeanism is great. But can we make sure that these students that are taking out all these loans will have a means to pay them back? Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Absolutely. Do you feel as someone then who is the first generation college student to have a doctorate? Do you feel a responsibility to lead the way, to pave the way for the Black community in our industry? And you've already said that you are there to mentor the students in your new job, in your new position. Do you feel that responsibility? And is there a moment, and this is very, I wasn't going to ask you this till later on in the interview, but we've gone around (laughs) in a different circle altogether, but that's us. So is it about legacy for you as well, with your children included in that? Yeah, I mean, definitely. You know, it's funny because after I graduated, both my parents got their degrees. 
you know, really? they went back to school. Oh, yay. School. That's my sisters amazing. And my siblings, they all have That's degrees now. Amazing. You know, what did they study? So my mom did a business and then my sisters, my siblings, they all did theology. That is amazing. You know? yep. You've created monsters. <laughs> well, it's funny. Well, I mean, you know, it's one of the things that I realized without realizing it is that part of the impact is where other people see that, oh, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, my niece is literally, she's a scientist. She's on her way to getting her doctorate as well. So and I don't know, molecular science or something like she's doing like STEM research, whatever. Okay, I mean, whatever. Like, yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, don't know either. Something, <laughs> something super smart and she's absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but it's the thing is that it becomes the norm is that when one starts to do it, then it becomes the norm of this is accessible. I know for myself, yes, to answer your question, I put a lot of pressure on myself to make sure that what I'm saying, when I'm talking, when I'm representing myself, when I'm representing my community, mm-hmm. where if I am, as we go to all of those conferences, yes. you know, I am one of the few, if not the only <laughs> person of color at these conferences, right? Yes. So if I am the only voice someone has the opportunity to hear, then I want to make sure that I'm representing what I'm saying with authority. I do feel like I have a sense of responsibility to represent my culture, to challenge the stereotypes that are perpetuated. So, I mean, you know, we've worked together. I am yes. very like, no, it has to say like this. It, yes. it, I take it very, very, very seriously for that reason. Because if I'm going to be your only source until you get to know more stuff, I want to try to lead you in a way that's going to feed you and not feed your misconceptions. Yes. When we were collaborating, Elizabeth Benson was leading the way in our collaboration. That was over like a 12-month period from the first meeting that we had to when our paper was released, Completed. completed, and it was on equity, inclusivity, diversity, and belonging in the voice studio. Like I saw a change in you from the first meeting to when we were in those final stages and we were making those editorial changes, you had changed. And I could see that you were becoming more careful about the language. You would be wanting to articulate things in a a way that you had never done before. I could see that in you. It was like not only were you feeling that responsibility, but I feel that you were learning and growing more. Absolutely. I mean, just like you're saying, it it was more like recognizing that I do have a responsibility and acknowledging there's a scripture that says to whom much is given, much is required. It was that moment and during that process where I was doing a lot of reading. I mean, I still am, but... I remember a lot of reading or a lot of reading and just because again, recognizing if I'm always the only black person in the room or if I'm always the only voice that someone's going to hear, then I want to make sure that what I'm saying I'm representing and not over representing, (laughs) right? And being careful enough to be like, okay, let me not overgeneralize this or let me not imply and, mm-hmm. and all those things, it becomes a very delicate disposition, which I think my Caucasian colleagues don't share. 
to the same degree. They share yes. it when they're talking about another cultural music. Then they're like, oh, wait, I don't want to be offensive. You know, I don't yes. think my colleagues are that careful when they're writing about the history of rock and roll. I mean, matter of fact, they'll over and avoid the black influence in the and without thinking twice about it. They have no problem to say, oh, this was the first like something Buddy Holly or, you know what I mean? They just go. Yes. You know, they don't have that same responsibility that I place on myself. And it's a lot. I mean, that's a lot of responsibility. And is there ever a time that you feel tired or does that, when you hear someone make comment, does that give you the, like the drive to go, no, you know, I can do better? Because I'm listening to you and I'm going, wow, that's tiring. That's a lot of work. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because, I find it sometimes to be inhibiting, you know, it makes me take longer to Mm -hmm. do things because Mm -hmm. I'm always so careful. As a result, you don't see me on Facebook or in these Facebook groups because which you would think, well, well, that's the place that you would really want to be like, hey, no, Mm -hmm. this, but then you end up recognizing that I end up spending way too much time trying to educate the masses. And I'm like, no, you know, that's how I control. I totally get it. Look, and I don't engage either. Even I don't have the responsibility that you do. But as someone who is an advocate for the music, at the very least, and the responsibility that comes with that, I still don't engage either because I find it's just too much. And sometimes I'm shocked to read what I read in some of those forums. I just can't believe people think like that. But anyway, we're not going to go into that. We're going to have a little change of pace here. How's that? I want you to talk about a couple of things that are near and dear to you. One of them is your performance career, and then we're going to talk about soul ingredients. Maybe we should talk about soul ingredients first because that's kind of a natural segue from this to let's, what is it about Soul Ingredients? Where did all of that come about? It's a trademarked methodology that you have developed. So tell us about that. So Soul Ingredients was my effort of bringing together all the research that I'd done about gospel music and soul music and voice pedagogy and voice science and applied pedagogy into creating this curriculum for, as I was saying, how do we Hmm. create a formalized pedagogy, a formalized system for teaching people in a way that's going to still keep them culturally viable and authentic to themselves. So a lot of the soul ingredients, methodology aspects or whatever components had to do with saying, okay, what are the ingredients of soul? Like I, you know, I'll tell people all the time, it's not recipes. Okay, do this first, do this second, do this third, right? It's not a methodology in that way, but it's systematic in the sense of saying, okay, well, these are the areas that you need to focus on. Right. You need to focus these broad areas like anatomical awareness. You need to know what your instrument is, does, so that you can understand how to navigate it accordingly. Voice training or voice fitness or voice conditioning, however you want to say, when you're really taking the time to enhance and develop the instrument itself, that's very different to me from stylistic conditioning or style conditioning, where you're developing the voice to maintain a certain style characteristic. So, or some sort of vocal behavior that may be more aligned with this particular style. 
And then looking at that song interpretation or story development as the fourth component. So these become very specific categories for which one can develop. However, there's not necessarily, well, you have to reach this point of academic, of anatomical awareness before you go into this. And then you have to, you know, it's not that. It's just that, okay, you're going to work on your arms now in the gym. Okay, now you're going to work on your legs. Okay, well, these are your cardio exercises. And then when you start to categorize the pedagogic concepts in those ways, then you can create individualized training sessions. That is different to a lot of other methodologies because it sounds like you're teaching your method, but you're meeting the student at where they're at. So it's a lot more student-centric than a lot of others because that's always my thing with methods is that, you know, week one is this, week two is that, and we're all different, essentially. Yeah, it's definitely not one-size-fits-all. And I think, you know, coming out of Somatic Voice Works, LeVetri method is really where that's rooted. I mean, Jeannie LeVetri is the one who helped me really codify even Mm -hmm. my dissertation. And the one that challenged me to say, Do not create another method based out of classical music. Just create something new. So having that kind of mindset and having that pedagogy background from Jeannie, you know, her methodology of functional training and really looking at registration and really looking to address the voice for what it is and what it's doing really created the foundation for my approach to soul ingredients, my approach to working, to having this kind of student-centered model. So when I'm doing these two teacher training programs, like when science meets soul, one of that, or any of my weekend intensives that I do that are all based on different genres, the goal is how do I lead teachers into this student-centered approach within a formal structure? You know, that's basically what it is that we're doing. Well, how do you listen to this person and pick out these aspects that you need to, that you want to develop? How do you guide them through these modules, if you call it? I don't even like call them modules because it still implies that they're one after another. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) You know, but in these categories, and that's basically what Soul Ingredients ends up being, is here are the strategies to get people to start thinking about themselves, emotionalism, emotional aspects, thinking about, well, what do I sound like? What do I sound like? How do I, as a teacher, listen to a singer and say, All right. Based upon how they're presenting themselves in front of me, what are the expectations? What things are going to be what's natural and how far is it away from where they want to go versus them coming into the room and saying, well, this is where you need to be. Yes. And I mean, the other thing with students is they present one way one day and then the next week they come in with a whole new set of problems based on how they're feeling because you can't separate the mind, the emotions and a bad day and everything else that's gone on in their lives from the previous week and how that impacts on their voice too. That's always a consideration, isn't it? Absolutely. So within putting your method together, within soul ingredients, do you believe you have found then the secret ingredients to finding authenticity within the singer? I think I'm finding a collection of ingredients that works, you know, and I say that finding because it's still in process. You know, I don't think that I'll ever find the ingredient because I think the ingredient is going to be, you know, student centered. It's going to be different from different people. Mm -hmm. But the more that I work to develop the methodology, 
the more I'm finding different approaches to explaining things, the more I'm starting to bring in more considerations, the more experience I have with categorizing loosely different personality types. Yes. You know, different body types and how both of those body types and personality types work together, you know, to Mm -hmm. create certain consistencies. So no, there's no one ingredient, but do I do recognize that, you know, like how many different ways is there to make chicken? How many flavors do you want to add? How many ways can you season chicken, right? Which one is the right one? Well, it depends on who you're talking Mm. to. Right. Exactly. So I think that that's at the end of the day, that's what I'm finding. I'm really Mm. opening up the spice cabinet to say, wow, oh, you like spicy food. Well, have you tried? Oh, you don't like spicy, but you like spiced food. You should try. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because that's different, right? I love that you said that it's ever evolving. Because that too separates your methodology from others because most methodologies are fixed. And you're saying this is evolving and you'll continue looking for the secret. You'll continue to grow and learn yourself. And that's so important because the other consideration too, it's not just the people in front of us are evolving as human beings. We're forever evolving, but so is music. Right. Music is a landscape that's always changing as well. So I think to be stuck is really limiting, isn't it? Well, I tell you, I think within the soul ingredients, right? If the soul ingredient is you, then what I'm looking for always is what are the ways to get you to express yourself? And how do you, once we figure out what that is, how do we articulate that within the cultural music context? So I feel like in some ways, the methodology doesn't change. But your approach to it does. Yes. The goal, the goal doesn't change, you know, but it's more like, hmm, how can I get, if this is the path and it's so specific to the person that I'm talking to, how do I get them to recognize or guide themselves? The first day of lessons, I say, I'm telling you right now, I do not have a magic wand. I am here to help you teach yourself. So all the way to the way that I'm teaching, I come in, I make the student tell me, what, what are we doing today? What are you working on? What have you tried? What did you discover? What did you discover about yourself? Because I can't teach you how to work. I can't put your hands on the keys. You are the only one that knows how your body feels. So I need you to articulate it for me so that I can help you try to come up with some strategies that will help you feel your body the way you need to do whatever said task is. Yes. So, you know, that's a part of the methodology, empowering the student, empowering the person to realize that they are in control of whatever they want to sound like. So it's really exciting. I mean, I would love to be able to just get all of this stuff out on paper. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, always, that so come. That I'm will... always so careful that it just rough because I'm like, no, but I mean that they might read this and they might think that I'm saying that, but I'm not saying that I'm saying. Oh. This, you know, and so. so it's being left to interpretation by the reader. Yeah. And you don't. That's want, the like hard that. part. That's the heart. That is that's yes. the hard part. Yes. And people read it with their biases. Yes. Thank you, human beings. (laughs) So when you teach at university, so within your new job and you also still at Princeton, do you bring that into that teaching environment or is that a completely different environment for you? No, I'll tell you what's interesting, particularly about this semester is because at Princeton, Princeton doesn't have a performance degree. So I could use this methodology just freely. 
right? Mm -hmm. Without any sense of accountability, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Absolutely. Because there's no juries. Now, whereas this time in this new school where all of the majors are, you know, R&B singers and rappers and whatever, but they're all majors, they're all music majors and they have juries at the end of the year. It's really forced me to bring my methodology into a model of assessment because, you know, I have to grade them. Yes. I still want it to be student centered. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've developed is this kind of sense of transparency. I keep notes for them on Google Drive. And each day, like when I say, so for the first week, first lessons or whatever, you know, still the same 10 lessons. When we're discovering something and I say, okay, well, if you had to come up like this is by lesson, I don't know, four or five, you know, we're exploring all these different things. And I say, if you had to come up with three things that you have to remember before you open your mouth, what would that be for you? And then they'll say, you know, some people will say, oh, okay, I have to remember to keep my mouth open. Oh, I have to make sure that would be one. I have to make sure my tongue feels like a mound. Like these are their words. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Like that, you know, or someone says that they have to picture a rainbow. You know, I don't really care what they say. What about unicorns? Have you had those? I've had unicorns. Yet. I've had rainbows. I've had mounds. I have floating. I have my tongue's not there. I mean, you know, all of these different sensations. Right? Okay. But whatever they say, I type it into this Excel file or slash Google yes. sheet. Yes. And then we highlight it. And, you know, some of them, because some of them don't have like, everybody doesn't have the same thing they have to worry about. Right. So once they have their technique based in science, obviously, because we're going through the whole anatomy and we're going through what these things mean, then I can hold them accountable to what they said. Well, on September 27th, you said, I didn't tell you this. You said, based upon what you felt, that you had to do A, B, and C. So if jury comes and I don't see A, B, and C that you said works when your body is in order, I'm going to grade you accordingly. (laughs) 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 And that's how I do it. Okay. (laughs) You know? I like that. it's about accountability to self. And then that makes them be more intentional. It makes them be more in control. Oh, okay. I have to keep this flow. I have to do whatever it is without me saying, do it this way. I'm like, no, you said. That's it. This, that that's what you need. And then that worked, right? So those are the kind of things that I'm finding myself exploring, you know? But how do you deal with assessment and how do you grade people based in a quantitative manner, but yet be very student-centered? What a journey. Yes. Yeah, that is a journey. Okay. Now, what about, I know that you've returned to performing. I saw that you did a gig in Portugal and it looked amazing. Yes, it was so nice. <laughs> and you've had a big performance career. You're still performing. And I actually had the opportunity to see you perform at a little venue. Remember in Philadelphia? Yes, in Philly. That is right. Yes. Yep. Yep. So I've seen you do your thing and you are just brilliant. You're very captivating on stage. And you've now finally, because we've heard about this album for years. Right. (laughs) Finally, finally the album was released in August, All or Nothing. What was the inspiration for that album? Well, you know, again, like you're saying, I've been waiting to do something for quite some time. And one of the reasons that I had not done so is because, again, that feeling of not fitting, not fitting in one particular genre, right? 
And then by the time that I decided that, okay, I'm going to just do me. Then I was so caught up in like all the publishing and all that kind of stuff that I didn't really get a chance to do my own work. So all or nothing was really to me to say, you're going to have everything that I do or nothing at all. So I wasn't going to sit and worry about whether or not it was too gospel enough or too R&B enough or too jazzy enough. Yes, yes, yes. You know, whatever. It was going to be all of me. I was going to talk about things that meant something to me. Those songs that I picked all have legacy influences, like by people that inspire me, two people that I want to inspire. You know, my and kids who are that, on the your album. Kids. Yeah, because my your kids daughter are... plays the double bass. Yep, my daughter, she plays the double With bass. The pink case. She's playing all over hot pink case. Hot, like, I've seen the hot, and it's as big as her. Pink. Yes. Yes, it's beautiful. And, you know, the fact that she's really, really thriving, she's actually playing with the Princeton University Jazz Band and she's a junior in high school. That's amazing. She's thriving. You know, my son is 12. He is, he just turned 12. You know, he's performing. Uh, He plays trumpet and and guitar, but he's just literally today got casted as Aladdin in their school play Aladdin. Oh, wow. So a school musical, excuse me. And you're not a proud mother. I can't see any proud mother. (laughs) (laughs) They are a blessing. They really are. They are wonderful, wonderful. And, you know, you can tell that this is where I was talking about. You become that role model. And you have the kids, they see, oh, okay, this is what you're supposed to do, you know, and they start doing those things accordingly. So Mm -hmm. it was great to have them on the album and and also being with Cyrus Chestnut and Don Braden and Kenny Davis, like all these people that are just like monster musicians, monster musicians, but have the biggest heart. Mm -hmm. It just made the album just so worth doing. I'm actually in February, the whole gang, if you will, is we're going to do a concert at Princeton with my ensemble, my student oh. ensemble, Jazz Vocal Collective. So we're going to oh do a split gosh. concert. So my students are going to sing like background for me. They're going to do one section of their own music, but then they're going to sing with me and my group Amazing. and everything. So it's going to be wonderful. I have to send you the info because it's going to be live yes. streamed as well. And oh, wow. Well, so well, it's going to be great. Well, well yeah. when I am going to share, if people want to find you, your soul ingredients, your book, your album, we're going to share all those links in the show notes. But I just think you're an amazing human being. You're my friend. We're more than just colleagues. We've known each other for a while now and we always hang out whenever there's a conference on. We're the popular people. No. Absolutely, <laughs> right? We, we end up with a posse. <laughs> 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 that is so true. It so, is. So I mean, true. the last ICVT, I think it grew, it started out with three of us and then the next thing it was like 15 of us. was going, <laughs> how did it get so big? <laughs> what happened? I'm, yes, yes. But I think that is so amazing. You know, yes. it's so amazing to just find kindred spirits, mm-hmm. you know, all over the world. And, it, you know, I'm so happy to have you and be able to call you my friend and be able to collaborate. Likewise. And do wonderful things. So, you know. Yes. I'm not very good at doing stuff like that. Is that right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I did it. Yeah. We're going to get to the last couple of questions here because it's very late your time and we don't want you turning into a pumpkin. Because it's like after midnight there, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Oh, my gosh. Okay. But, hey, for a change, you're not waking up at like 3 o'clock in the morning. 
I know. And can I say this is the first time you and I have had a meeting where I'm not in my gym gear and I'm always, and for some reason I've always got my St. Thomas, my hot pink St. Thomas singlet top on. I don't know how that happens, but anyway. Man, that's great. Yeah. So, okay, last couple of questions. What would be your greatest piece of advice to the singing voice community as we travel through 2022? What can we do better? I think we can value each other better. I think we can value our students. I think we can value ourselves. I think we can value process. And I think if we just kind of take time to do that and just to shift the emphasis from the product to the process and add just more value to the process, I think we'll be able to just have a much more enriched life. So we are not and our students are not waiting to get to the end before they can share themselves. Yes. So that would be my biggest advice. And based on our earlier discussion about the responsibility that you feel, what would be your legacy? What would you like people to remember you by? I know that's really profound, even for your children, you know, the voice community at large. What would be your legacy? I think my legacy would be anyone that came through my work or through me had the courage to believe in themselves and had the courage to, again, the sense of value that you are wonderfully made. I think that is the biggest thing. If I can share that with anybody, if I can make them feel better about themselves, Mm -hmm. if I can make them feel worthy, because a lot of people don't feel worthy. They don't feel value. Mm -hmm. They feel like they have to strive to be something. That would be my legacy is, you know, whether it's through my pedagogy, whether it's through my music, whether through my children, yes, that just really, really knowing that you're wonderfully made and, you know, you're beautiful just the way you are. And that would be the legacy. That is just so beautiful. It makes me want to cry. I'm welling up here. Uh, oh, no, I suppose because I actually, that resonates with me. You know, what you've just said, I've just thought, wow, as a mother too, and as someone in my family, the first person to be educated, and it's just like, you know, you can do anything in life you put your mind to. You are good enough. You are worth it. You are worthy. You are worth the effort. Yes, yes, and yes. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm going to let you go. Trinice, because it is very late and I appreciate you. Love Love you so much. I love you back. And hopefully I will see you in Vienna. Yes, I will see you in Vienna. For sure. For sure. For sure. Yes. I'm going. I'm going. Let's see how big we can make the posse. Right? Let's do it. (laughs) Is Irene going? I mean, you know, we're all off topic. No, okay. No, well, you know, she is not going. I, no, I, I did see her and I asked her and I said it won't be the same because she's always no. been my traveling buddy. Yeah, but, okay, I'll be your traveling buddy. What the Yay! Okay, okay we'll that. have to collaborate then and work out where we're staying and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, let's do that. okay I'm right. up for it. But we're going to share all your information, your album, your soul ingredients, where they can find you, Trinice, everything about you. I truly appreciate you. I appreciate you giving me your time and our listeners for being honest, so candid. You know, it means a lot. Thank you. 
thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Voice and Beyond. I hope you enjoyed it as now is an important time for you to invest in your own self-care, personal growth and education. Use every day as an opportunity to learn and to grow so you can show up feeling empowered and ready to live your best life. If you know someone who will also be inspired by this episode, please be sure to copy and paste the link and share it with them. Or share it on social media and use the hashtag A Voice and Beyond. I promise you, I am committed to bringing you more inspiration and conversations just like this one every week. And if you would like to help me, please rate and review this podcast and cheer me on by clicking the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts right now. I would also love to know what it is that you most enjoyed about this episode and what was your biggest takeaway. Please take care and I look forward to your company next time on the next episode of A Voice and Beyond.